Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman. And today I'm talking with Joy Kiddy, who's known as the low-carb, healthy-fat dietitian. She's a fellow Canadian who studied at McGill University in Montreal, but who now lives in British Columbia. In 2022, Joy published her book, Low Carb Breads of the World. And this is what we're going to be talking about. Not just bread, but also flour, gluten, and, well, everything low carb related. We'll get to our chat in just a minute. But just before, I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if it's your first time here, welcome. And if you haven't yet rated or reviewed this podcast, then could I ask you to do that by scrolling down and tapping on the stars to rate this podcast. And you can also click on write a review to tell me how this Life After Sugar podcast is inspiring you in your life after sugar. Thank you. All right, here's my chat with Joy. So I'm here today with Joy Kiddy, who is the low-carb, healthy-fat dietitian out in BC, Canada, British Columbia. Hi, Joy. Lovely to see you. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Well, I've had coffee at 6.30 in the morning here. I know it's 9.30 there, so you have a slight advantage. But uh, yes, I have had a cup of coffee, so it's a good morning. Smashing. So we'll both be making sense today. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) So can you let um, us know about how you became the low-carb, healthy-fat dietitian um, all the way, I guess, back to your studies and even into your childhood? Well, um, I was a dietitian for quite a number of years. I'm a woman of a certain age and uh, been practicing dietetics um, kind of in the usual conventional way for years. And about uh, seven years ago, a girlfriend of mine who's a retired physician came to see me about implementing a low-carb diet for a family member who had diabetes and hypertension, a bunch of other things. And I kind of rolled my eyes and was thinking, you know, Atkins and heart disease, (laughs) all the things we were taught about uh, or preconceived ideas I had about a low-carb diet. And um, she referred me to Dr. Fung's blogs at that point and that was way before he wrote his first book and I started reading his blogs and clicking on the studies he was nice enough to put the links to the studies um so being very nerdy I went there and followed all that make a long story short after reading the literature for about three months I realized I had to change my practice I realized that there was actually really solid evidence and this is going back seven years ago that carb restriction makes a whole lot of sense when it comes to um, diabetes, for sure. As a matter of fact, uh, two weeks ago, after five years of looking behind me 
uh, wondering who's going to report me to one of the colleges I'm uh, registered in I'm in Canada. Um, Diabetes Canada invited me to speak at a conference representing a low-carbon ketogenic diet in the remission of type 2 diabetes. Well, well, well. Who'd have thought? It was like, wow. I mean, I've written over 350 articles about using a low-carb healthy fat diet. It's under the uh, Food for Thought tab on my low-carb webpage, which is lchf-rd.com, and they're all categorized. And I have a whole bunch about diabetes in the American Diabetes Association, the Canadian Diabetes Association, which became Diabetes Canada. And I'd always say, you know, Diabetes Canada is considering the evidence and they haven't yet made a decision. I would always say something positive and people would say, why don't you just blast them and say they're just way behind the time? And I said, no, like they're being typical Canadians and taking their time (laughs) considering the evidence. And then last April, they came out with a statement saying it's safe and effective as one of the choices amongst plant-based diet and um, yeah, low-fat diet. Um, It's one of the options that people can use. But then I got invited to speak. Amazing. And so can I just um, circle back a little bit because seven years ago is when I also discovered as it were low carb or sugar-free diet and but the difference being is that I'm not a dietitian I have no background in nutrition and I didn't even know what macros were or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was quite happy as such I sort of wish I didn't know now but you know um, <laughs> but I had nothing to unlearn and as a teacher you know, I find that learning new stuff is way easier than unlearning old stuff. So how did that affect you sort of waking up to the fact that, oh, my gosh, what I've always known or been taught or teach others is inaccurate? I, it's a question of I went to McGill. I did my undergraduate in dietetics at McGill and we were trained to be evidence based. And evidence based means you have to keep up with the evidence. And I went to school many years ago and the evidence has changed. And so going to the studies, how I ended up writing 350 articles about a low carb healthy fat diet was because I was in the literature reading it. And reading it, I wanted to put it, my first actually studies were in um, education and fine arts. I was going to be an art teacher. So, of course, studying education, we, you know, we learned how to take what we know and translate it into a way we can communicate to others in a way that they can understand. And I developed what I call my science made simple style, which is taking the the articles that I've read and translating the evidence into terms that people, A, can understand themselves, B, can communicate to others, family members, doctors, other clinicians, because it's like swimming upstream, whether it's from a food addiction point of view, which my research happens to be in mental health nutrition. So it was like kind of marrying all the thing, all of my passions together. For myself, unlearning wasn't as difficult as learning because there were a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know about insulin resistance. I didn't know about hyperinsulinemia. I didn't know about the HOMA IR and being able to measure how much, how insulin resistant we are, even if our blood sugars are perfect and seeing, you know, fasting blood sugars and uh, hemoglobin A1C that are picture perfect. And as a dietitian and people's doctors would say, oh, 
no problem, you're not pre-diabetic. And then, you know, realizing that when we look at the insulin response, how hard is, are people's pancreas working to keep their blood glucose normal? And we see insulin through the roof. And then I learned that 14 years before blood sugar even becomes abnormal, people have high insulin. And then I could actually catch it long before their blood sugar became abnormal. People from, I was diabetic for eight years. I was obese. I had hypertension. I had abnormal cholesterol. But your blood sugar was okay? On no, I was, I was diabetic for eight years when I discovered okay. low carb. Okay. And so, but I was hyperinsulinemic probably for years before. Before that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, we may have been looking, it looks, or seems that way that we were looking at the wrong it's market. like looking my, my latest thing, as you probably know, is thyroid stuff. It's like looking at TSH and saying it's a normal range and people don't have uh, subclinical hypothyroidism. Well, nine years later, I just got diagnosed as being hypothyroid. And my doctor goes, oh, well, look at your TSH for the last nine years. It's been high normal. And I said, I've been telling you this yeah. for nine years. Yeah. And I've had, you know, half my hair fall out six years ago. And they didn't put, because the guidelines, you know, we have our guidelines. If fasting blood glucose is normal and hemoglobin A1C is normal, people are not pre-diabetic. If TSH is normal, it's in range, they don't even test T3 and T4. So I'm looking at these clinical situations. I'm trying to look before the fact so that people don't end up with the kind yeah. of diagnoses that I did and so many other people do. Yes, yes, yes. Another way of looking at things. So this led you um, from seven years ago to now, this led you, amongst other things, to writing your book. Yeah, it's so many people in my practice had trouble giving up bread. They missed bread. They fantasize about bread. They think about all the things and they try to make bread out of you know cauliflower and out of uh, almond flour and coconut flour and whipped egg whites and gave up. And but most importantly, about uh, a third of my clientele are South Asians and a lot of them are um, diabetic and uh, people of South Asian Indian descent have a much higher rate of type two diabetes. So do Hispanics anyone of Hispanic background. And these are carb-centered cultures. These, you know, it's fine for me to say, oh, I'll just give up bread. I'll make pizza out of, you know, uh, protein powder and, you know, cheese or whatever. But these people have a culture that's centered around eating dishes as a community, taking pieces of bread and dipping it into a communal dish. And I thought, what if I could create a decent low-carb roti or paratha or naan or tortilla or pita bread and make it so that people who are Middle Eastern, South Asian, um, uh, Hispanic, could adopt a low-carb diet and eat bread that actually resembles bread. And so I went about creating what ended up being called Low-Carb Breads of the World. And uh, the book was released in July. And I've, it's been sold in 27 countries around the world. Wow, amazing. All around the world, local. All the around the world. And some and in eight different regions in India. Amazing. Completely different regions. Yeah. 
it just goes to show just how culturally deep it goes to eat bread and different types of bread. And I found in my personal experience that when I tell people I don't eat sugar, you know, there's a, a, a mild freak out, but nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing overwhelming. But then when people learn that I don't eat flour or refined grains or any type of grains, actually, which includes bread, the freak out is off the charts. Why is that? Because it's related to people's culture. And I didn't understand this. And a matter of fact, in the introduction to the book, um, I talk about being against low-carb bread. When Carbidot came out, I said, well, just, you know, use a lettuce wrap for burgers and, you know, Indian food in addition, just eat it with a spoon. But I was missing the cultural aspect that especially multi-generational families that live together, Middle Eastern, uh, Hispanic and South Asian other cultures eating around a table bread is central to a meal it's a definition of a meal in a lot of cultures and if you don't have some pita or some naan or some roti or tortillas then it's not a meal and so people freak out because it's it's like attacking the very roots of their culture so I went about creating these breads from a clinical point of view, and very selfishly, I and and you probably know this because I've told you I have carb addiction to or sugar addiction. Carb people don't realize carbs and sugar are the same thing. People say, "Oh, I'm a sugar addict." Other people say, "I'm a carb addict." Well, carbs are just sugar molecules strung together like pearls on a chain. So it's it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But the two, three foods that I'm clearly addicted to that I know, one is pizza cooked in a wood-burning oven. One is Montreal-style bagels, and the other one is chocolate. Uh, well, two of them are gluten-based. So I went about, selfishly, I was going to make the, per oh, and chalad, which I really like, and I wanted to be able to make for a lot of Jewish people who want to celebrate the holidays, especially Friday night. And you can't make a challah. I actually perfected the challah before I finished the book. They never got around to making bagels because I ended up with tendonitis and couldn't was not allowed to need bread anymore. Um, but I perfected the pizza, which is to die for. I've served it to my three young adult sons. And when I was on another, I won't mention the podcast, a very famous podcast from two doctors. Well, actually three doctors, but only two do the podcast. Um they saw pictures of the pizza and the English muffins. Oh my goodness. They're like Thomas English muffins, but low carb. And yeah. you can make them like a, an egg McMuffin uh, and they're low carb and they're high protein. So these are foods. These are breads that can be used in a low carb diet, in a, in a high protein diet, in a ketogenic diet, people who are avoiding gluten for, uh, for uh, clinical reasons, these breads are not for you. If you're celiac, if you have hypothyroidism. Yeah. So. so, but what's the problem with bread in the first place? It's Is it, you know, you hear that flour is like sugar. Can you explain a little bit about that? People don't, we, we know what glucose is. Glucose is a molecule of sugar. Well, there's sucrose and lactose, which are other sugar molecules. But the, the commonality is our body breaks them all down to glucose, which is a currency of our blood. Uh, you know, you measure your fasting blood glucose. Well, starches are just glucose molecules. Think of glucose as a pearl. Bread are pearls of glucose 
strung together on a long, so they're just long chains of glucose. And our and when we digest them, our enzymes cut them up in the strings between the pearls. And then we get individual glucose molecules, which A, spike our glucose, spike our insulin. And, you know, for people who have um, autoimmune tendencies or, or diagnosis, cause inflammation. So people don't realize that bread is sugar. Pasta is sugar. Oh, the next thing I was going to do was create uh, pasta from... Um, from the same thing, but uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Evelyn Bartolomeo, just came out with a book doing what I was going to do after, and I'm like, yay! So yeah, you yes. have options. Yeah, low carb breads that um, you know, don't have those don't spike glucose, don't spike insulin, and are high protein are a great option for people who either for metabolic reasons or for addiction reasons. Now. From an addiction point of view, it's a touchy thing. And because I, I do work in, you know, counseling people with food addiction, if brings one of their slippery slopes, don't eat my breads. They are too good. Yeah, they are that would be me. the same receptors in your brain as the real thing. Yeah. If they weren't good, you know, if they were the A1 breads or the, the coconut flour breads, they're not that good. They're not going to give you that dopamine response and the endocannabinoids and endoopioids. But there are people who are uh, sugar addicts or carb addicts who, like the other third of my addiction, are chocolate addicts. Well, it's not going to bother them. Yeah. And they know they're giving up bread, regular bread, because it's glucose, nothing more than glucose, but that's not their addiction. For those people, low-carb breads of the world is a great alternative because Absolutely. they can be compliant with a, a, a sugar-free um, lifestyle and not trigger their food addiction. I tell people, if you've ever been addicted to any of the breads, in my, don't go there. Just yeah. you know, buy yeah. the book for someone else. Don't, don't make it. Yes, yes. It would be my case, I think. I mean, um, I would probably have the behavior that I'm free from and have been for over seven years if I were to start dabbling in low-carb breads? Well, it's addiction. You can't dabble in addiction. If someone is a heroin addict, we tell them you need to abstain completely. If someone's an alcoholic, we tell them you have to abstain completely. What people don't understand about addiction is people are not addicted to the food. They're addicted to the chemicals that our brain produces in response to the food. Most people with food addiction, and, and this is where my research background in mental health nutrition really comes in, which happens to be in dopamine. And uh, dopamine is one of the things that is re released in response to food. But the other ones are endocannabinoids, endoopioids. And endocannabinoids are exactly what it sounds like. They're cannabis-looking chemicals that are made by the body, hence endo and that are released as part of the response to pleasure in eating food. Endo-opioids, when, when people have food addiction, it's not just a dopamine response, which everybody gets when they eat a plate of pasta or you know pizza, but when it's the addiction thing, it, you get the endo-opioids and endocannabinoids reinforcing that pathway. And what I believe, and I don't have the scientific proof to confirm this is it's the chemicals the endoopioids and the endocannabinoids and the feeling that people get including the dopamine but people who don't have addiction get that as well 
that they're addicted to. It's that feeling that someone who smokes several joints and goes, ah, or yeah. takes some kind of opioid gets. Because our the chemicals that our brain produces in response to addiction are not different than the ones that people take exogenously from outside. Right. So so it's like we're addicted to the high wherever it comes from. Exactly. And so dopamine, people get their runners high. It's great. That's you know, people don't get addicted running, although some people do. Some people uh, will have sex addiction or gambling addiction. They're not addicted to the thing any more than people who have food addicts are addicted to the foods. It's the brain response that kind of gets in a cycle in an endless loop where we crave a bigger high. Yeah. And like the drug addict or the, uh, you know, uh, gambling addict or the alcoholic, that first response of dopamine, endocannabinoids and endo-opioids is so powerful that the brain tries to seek that, but it never gets there. Mm. It's always almost there. And so the reason why I believe addiction progresses is because we're seeking that response that we had that first time that we had that body response and it always requires a bigger dose more of a dose and it's it's the chemicals in our brain and our body in response to the foods or the behaviors that we're addicted to and yeah yeah that makes total sense i just want to take a little break to tell you that if you're looking for some help and support to help you start cutting sugar especially if you want the health benefits of an intermittent fasting lifestyle, but you know that sugar's derailing you, then go to my website, aftersugarclub.com and download your five tips for getting rid of cravings. If you're an intermittent faster and you want to cut sugar, but you feel alone, like nobody understands your choice to feel better and live a healthier life, like nobody gets you, then the After Sugar Club is the place for you. Can you imagine what your life could be like with all the health benefits of intermittent fasting and less sugar? Like more stable energy, better heart health, easier weight loss, less aches and pains and less inflammation and fewer and less severe headaches, Intermittent fasting and cutting sugar can also help lower the risk of depression, give you better sleep, encourage a stronger immune system, and just like me, give you better digestion and less bloating, better gut health. You could be amazed to find that you have better mood, more mental clarity, improved skin, less hunger and cravings, and that really makes intermittent fasting easier. You could get all of these health benefits and more, but do you know that sugar could actually be tripping you up if what you really want is an easy and natural intermittent fasting lifestyle? In the After Sugar Club, you'll become part of a friendly and supportive private community that's not on Facebook. You'll have access to me and my insight and experience living seven years sugar-free Plus, you'll have access to a wealth of videos, ideas, recipes, 
practical tips to replace sugar, and much more. And you'll also have access to our twice-monthly check-in calls, which is what I call our support calls, for guidance, encouragement, and accountability. The After Sugar Club isn't just about what you eat. It's about how you feel. And if you want to transform your relationship with sugar and feel free from the hold it has on you so that you can live a healthier lifestyle, including intermittent fasting, then come join us in the After Sugar Club. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the big green button, Join the Club. See you there. And I think the other reason for the freak out about bread is that it doesn't taste sweet. So why, how can we say it's sugar, you know? It's one of the tests for um, to see if someone is, is uh, sensitive to carbohydrates is you take a piece of cracker and you put it in your mouth and you see how long it takes to dissolve and you measure your blood sugar. You can see the glucose by just from it dissolving in your mouth because the glucose, the, the um, enzymes that break down carbohydrate bread and crackers into glucose start in the mouth. It's not the stomach. It's not the intestine. And you can literally do a blood glucose test after sucking on a piece of cracker and see the glucose response. Mm. So I'm not encouraging anybody who's got addiction to carbohydrates to try this, but you can read about it. Uh, it does taste sweet if you suck on it mm. because it breaks down from starch. Actually, I have a few articles um, about this on under the Food for Thought tab where I think one is called um, something about pearls on a, ch on a chain and that uh, starches are just glue, uh, uh, sugar on a chain or something like that. But you, there's, they're all categorized. But I explain how pasta, rice, bread are just glucose molecules. When you take a piece of cracker, a piece of bread, it will break down into the single chain glucose molecules. No difference a response having a sucking on a piece of bread or taking some sugar or yeah. honey or any other kind of simple yeah. herb. That's mind-blowing for, it was for me at least, and for a lot of people it is, you know, because we tend to associate sweet tastes with sugar and seeing that, you know, bread isn't sweet, then we're like, well, whoa, what's going on? And the other thing is, you know, um, a lot of people say to me, well, oh no, I eat good bread, you know, it's homemade, it's whole grain. And I'm like, show me the whole grains in bread. As far as I can tell, 99% is flour that's not whole it's been ground up it's it's something called acellular when people eat a whole grain bread brown bread what it really is is white bread where they throw some bran and some seeds and some fiber into it so it appears dark it's a whole grain bread and i'm again i'm not encouraging people to eat these breads if they're if they have addiction to carbohydrates or breads but if you take whole wheat berries and whole rye berries and you soak them and you bake them into bread like the European breads, the German breads and the Austrian breads, a little tiny bread weighs like a pound and a half. That is a whole grain bread. What makes it whole is the grain isn't milled up. As soon as the, the milling happens, and I have two articles on this called um, The Perils of Food Processing, and it's based on a talk by Gabor Dozi, who's a food scientist in Hungary. 
And I call it Gabor Made Simple because the guy is brilliant. He read 400 articles to do this talk. And he talks about how the processing of carbohydrates changes it from being cellular to acellular and the fact that has honored glucose. So a whole apple versus applesauce versus apple juice, it's in there. It's no different with wheat or rye or barley. If you eat the whole grain as a whole grain, it takes your body forever to digest it because there's the cellular wall and the fiber and the husk and all of that. Whole grain bread that people call whole wheat or whole grain is nothing but refined flour that has bran and fiber thrown back in. It doesn't change the fact that it's refined flour plus. Even if you make it at home, I say it that just changes the geography of where it's made. That's <laughs> exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, the difference with low-carb breads of the world is there's no grain in them. The only products, and this is why people with celiac dis disease can't eat them or uh, uh, hypothyroidism, and I would encourage people with hy hyperthyroidism not to eat it either because of the immune response, is they are made from, the, uh, in addition to the high protein ingredients in them, uh, there's the husk of wheat and the husk of rye and the husk of, so the outer part, which has all the fiber in it that's added to it to give it that texture of real bread. Um, but there's no carbs in that. As a matter yeah. of fact, some of the breads, like give you, I think the English muffins has like one English muffins has like 27 grams of protein and seven grams of carbs. Yeah. Amazing. So it's amazing. I mean, they're really great options for people who do not have autoimmune disorders and don't have addiction to carbs. Yes. So that some of the breads do have gluten. What's the deal with gluten? Okay. I didn't, I couldn't answer this question a few months ago, but since being diagnosed with hypothyroidism, I've learned a whole lot about it. The thyroid contains um, a, a chemical, which uh, a lot of organs do, but the thyroid has something called transglutaminase, which is an enzyme that creates bonds, cellular bonds. And in gluten, there's transglutaminase. Now, when we eat gluten, um, if we have leaky gut, which a lot of people do, I was off gluten for about seven years before I started creating these breads. I didn't eat it because I used to be gluten intolerant, although not celiac. Now, in hindsight, I kind of go, hmm, I should have kind of paid a little more attention. But um, what I know now wasn't known five years ago, so I wouldn't have been able to find this information but what happens is when we have leaky gut, which is created by eating foods that cause inflammation, including unfermented dairy products and gluten-containing products, what people don't realize is our intestine is the big, thick tube that's, you know, multicellular layers thick. It's one cell thick. And so the cells, think of them as little bricks side by side with little spaces in between. Well, bricks have mortar in between and cells have mortar in between. And what happens when we eat uh, gluten and sometimes uh, casein, which is from uh, unfermented dairy products, um, it causes leaky gut, which is a, a separating of the cell cells from each other and little gaps. And what happens is the, the contents of our intestine is not meant to be recognized by outsiders. The poop is supposed to stay in the tube, right? But when we end up with an inflammatory or autoimmune reaction and those gap walls become wider, 
uh, in SIBO, for example, or in H. pylori or leaky gut, the contents of our intestine become recognized by our immune system. Hence, when we eat gluten, our body sees the transglutaminase and creates enzymes. So that, and then says that is a foreign invader because it's not something it's, it's expecting to see. I think in my case, that probably happened from, you know, years ago when I didn't eat gluten, I probably had a few antibodies hanging around. But then when I was testing these breads, now, what should be understood is I had thyroid surgery 30 years ago to remo remove a, b a benign tumor. And that was what set the demise of my thyroid in motion. So my my thyroid hypothyroidism isn't predominantly autoimmune. It's from having a, a benign tumor removed and 30 years later, my my there's not much left of my thyroid. Nevertheless, I asked my doctor to test me for uh, transglutaminase antibodies, even though my TPO antibodies, which are the classic ones with Hashimoto's, are very low. Guess what? Transglutaminase enzymes in the normal range, but halfway through the normal range. Where did that come from? Probably from the year of testing these breads. And my body said, we recognize that protein from seven years ago. Hmm. So as ironic as it is, I am now not eating my own breads, which is horrible. But if I don't don't eat regular breads because of having been type 2 diabetic, why would I eat these breads now that I have an autoimmune disorder? Yeah, it makes sense. And But they're there for other people to enjoy and someone else can, who doesn't have food addiction and doesn't have uh, autoimmune disorders. And it's not just uh, celiac and um, and hypothyroidism, but type 1 diabetics, also auto autoimmune disorder, lupus, MS. I would encourage people who have any of those autoimmune disorders, stay away from gluten. Okay, so from what I can understand, gluten per se, as well as un unfermented dairy products, are not inflammatory for absolutely everybody. Is that right? Well, um, with and again, there's another article on my BBD website that explains this. But with dairy, there are two kinds of protein, two kinds of casein proteins, A1 beta casein and A2 beta casein. A lot of people think they're lactose intolerant, but they're actually intolerant to the A1 beta casein. All mammals, including humans, produce A2 beta casein proteins in their milk. Goats, sheep, water buffalo, every primate, humans. But cows had a mutation about 400 years ago that caused this a2 beta casein to become a one beta casein, but the advantage to farmers were that these this genetic mutation, a natural mutation, ended up making them incredible milk producers. So the farmers started breeding those cows with all the other cows. So almost all the milk you see in North America that isn't labeled A2 milk has A1 beta casein. And I believe, again, this is one of those things like that my dopamine uh, view of uh Carb addiction was there for 10 years before a study came out and proved that my hypothesis was right. This is my hypothesis that because our natural beta casein is A2 beta casein, that people who have a tendency to autoimmune disorders um, will recognize A1 beta casein as a foreign invader. So subsequently, I'm now going back to drinking goat's milk and water buffalo milk and making my own yogurt. Um, and just because why introduce something else that my body could create antibodies to that could, but most people 
who have lactose intolerance, actually it's not lactose intolerance, it's an intolerance to the A1 beta casein. So switching to A2 beta casein, A2 milk is a brand, any of the um, milks from any other um, species are fine. Yes, yes, I found that too. And so do you feel that you've had to give up a whole bunch of foods? I look at it this way. When I adopted a low-carb diet, it was after I had two girlfriends die. Both were in healthcare. One I went to high school with, one I knew when I was in university. One was a nurse for 35 years, retired on Friday, was dead on Monday. The other one was a care aide who came home after work and was found dead by her daughter on the floor after having a massive heart attack, stroke and heart attack. I get to live. I get to live to put my diabetes into remission by giving up carbs. And I don't, I'm not keto. I was keto at the beginning. I went low carb, which is fine for me. I was able to keep my diabetes in remission for two years before I became hypothyroid. And now it's that that's elevated by blood glucose, but that's going to come down as I deal with this other stuff. Again, I have to quote, give up something and give up the breads that I so lovingly created for health for, you know, people who can't give up bread for cultural reasons. I didn't know I had a thyroid that was dying and crying out for help for, you know, 10 years. And by giving up or I'm getting to choose life, I get to live. If I lower my antibodies, I'll get to live. My grandmother lived to 104. My father lived to 91. I, I get to choose life as opposed to facing the inevitable decline that will come from eating carbs, or in my case, with an autoimmune disorder, eating gluten. I don't, I think it's a question of how we frame it. We can, we can talk about how we give up things, or we could talk about how we're gaining in food addiction. The freedom one gains from not obsessing about the food and when we're going to get the food and how much we're going to eat of the food and how long we didn't eat that food. I mean, we know from addiction research that it takes at least 12 weeks of not eating the food till our brain starts to lower the threshold of, of, of um, cravings. And it takes a full year of abstinence before that, you know, there isn't that cycle of the little rat on the treadmill demanding and screaming for these things. I I could live without bread. I don't really care. I made the breads because I wanted people who needed them to have them. And yes, I wanted the, the low carb pizza. And the interesting thing is the pizza was so delicious and it was just like, and it didn't trigger the addiction. Huh. I could eat it, enjoy it and didn't think about the next. And I think it's, there's something about, the carbohydrates in the regular pizza that was part of that um, addictive cycle, the the low-carb breads of the world, none of them, not the English muffins, not the scones, not the challah, not the pizza, none of them triggered an addictive response when I ate them. And a few other people I know who had bread addiction ate them, and not bread addiction, but who were um, pre-diabetic or diabetic, ate them and didn't have any response. Most of the people who I know who have addiction to breads, I just told them, don't torture yourself. But I would imagine I can't be the only one who ate them and didn't have a response because the drug wasn't there. The thing that triggers my brain wasn't there. There wasn't the sugar molecule. There are no sugar molecules. There's no starch to break down into sugar. 
Yeah. They're 98% protein and, you know, a bit of fat and a little bit of carbs that you feed the yeast to make them grow. And then the yeast eats them and then they're not there anymore. So, yeah. So I agree with you. It's my experience as well that the giving up is something that other people perceive of what my reality is. Whereas I don't feel that I've given up anything. If I mean, I suppose you could argue that I've given up feeling like crap. But <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I've given right? up diabetes. I've given up um hypertension. Uh I've given up obesity. I lost 60 pounds and kept 50 of them off. Even with my hypothyroidism, I looked like I was 60 pounds heavier, but it was all water and mucin. I've given up illness. I've given up choosing the path my two girlfriends did. My family lives in Quebec, so they don't they don't see me eating differently but my daughter-in-law and son live here and well perfect example my my son is actually in um, switzerland today he's a backup goalie for team canada for the world floorball championships and i was watching the game live uh before the podcast but um i went to my daughter-in-law's on friday night for dinner and she said oh i was i was going to make a vegetarian lasagna and kale salad and uh, baked apple crumble and I said uh, thank you you know what let's just make it easier I'll bring over the supper and we'll eat together and I explained to her that lasagna is gluten and the kale salad is raw cruciferous vegetables which is having hypothyroid I can't eat and the apple crumble with butter and sugar when I asked her to make it without the, the crumble part just bake the apple so I can't do that so I brought over uh, shawarma and um, cucumber and tomato salad with crumbled feta and, and parsley. And what else did I bring over? I brought over a little homemade hummus, which people freak out. Oh my goodness, it's so high in oxalates. No, it isn't. It's very low in oxalates and no one has to eat three cups of it. And uh, I don't remember what else I brought over. A few things. Oh, uh, cooked chickpeas, uh, Moroccan style, which she absolutely adores and begged me to make while um, her husband, my son, was away. And she loved it. She loved the food. But how do I explain to my daughter-in-law that a, a, a vegetarian lasagna, I can't eat a vegetarian lasagna. It was incomprehensible to her. And I've known her for six years. Yeah. I, it was it was just easier for me to bring dinner and uh, let her save the lasagna for somebody else. Yeah. And that's very sweet of you. No pun intended. That is very yeah. sweet of you to offer to bring the food. Well, it just makes it easier than trying to have someone comply with my dietary requirements. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I understand that. Totally. Totally. And it also exposes her to how beautiful and wonderful, low, you know, food with a, she didn't miss the carbs. And there were carbs in the chickpeas, but they're not refined carbs or again, uh, exactly. exactly. Cellular carbs, although the hummus is acellular. So um, if someone wants to buy your lovely book, Low Carb Breads of the World, how can they do that? They go to www.lowcarb, all one word, hyphen, bread, singular, dot com. Lovely. And, that's and if they, they want to connect with me as a dietitian, I have two practices. Uh, for people in Canada, in most provinces, I can counsel them as a dietitian. For people outside of those provinces or in other parts of the world, I, I have, my first degree was in nutrition. So I'm also a nutritionist and can do nutrition counseling. And there's 
uh, lchf-rd.com, which is a low-carb, healthy-fat dietitian.com, and bbdnutrition.com, which is better by design nutrition. And if you just Google Joy Kitty Dietitian, K-I-D-D-I-E, you'll probably find links to both my practices. Just send me a note through the contact me form. But look at the low-carb breads of the world. I mean, there's a video on the front page that just kind of shows you all the breads. Don't go there if you're addicted to breads, please. <laughs> I don't, I you know, I don't want you to go there. But if you uh, are leading a, a, you know, a carb-free lifestyle and are avoiding breads for either cultural or um, health reasons, th these are great options. And some of them are just outstanding. And I'll them. I'm glad I created them for other people to enjoy, but I'd rather... Um, lower my thyroid antibodies and not feel like the way I did in June. Yeah, totally get that. And I'll put the links along with this episode. And thank you, Joy, so much. It, it really is a joy to talk to you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. So there you go. Life after sugar doesn't necessarily exclude bread or its cultural importance. And if you want to order Joy's book, Low Carb Breads of the World, then you'll find the link in the show notes together with this episode. And I'm so happy that Joy helped demystify what the deal is with gluten because I often feel that where flour and gluten and bread and other flour-based products are concerned, we sometimes tend to demonize them or throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And you know, I'm not one for demonizing anything not even sugar. I think we as consumers owe it to ourselves to find what foods work for us and what foods don't. And if you're looking for some free resources to help you cut sugar and enjoy the real sweetness in your life, then I have some for you on the Life After Sugar Facebook page, the Life After Sugar YouTube channel, and come and subscribe to my Instagram account at MyLifeAfterSugar. You'll find recipes, inspiration and sugar-free tips in all of those free resources as well as on my website AfterSugarClub.com. You probably know that cutting sugar has many, many benefits but how to live happily sugar-free is a challenge for many, many people and maybe it is for you too. So if you need help, and support and guidance so that you can finally feel free from the hold sugar has on you and start living your life after sugar, then join the After Sugar Club. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the green button to join the club. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.